Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers podcast with me, Jonathan Davis. I'm joined today by economist Dr. Peter Warburton, one of the leading economists in the UK, an author of a very insightful and indeed prescient book called Debt and Delusion, which he published in 1999 and in which he effectively foretold some of the impact of the global financial crisis that was to happen uh, nine years later, in 2008. In his book, he chronicled the build-up of debt uh, and isolated the fact that many of the authorities, including central banks and government policymakers, were not taking sufficient notice of the implications of that debt build-up for the way they managed the economy and indeed the consequences for consumers and investors alike. Well, today he's updated his thinking and his research uh, on that book uh, and has been with us today to highlight some of the issues that are raised and indeed the very disturbing consequences uh, that follow from his analysis, which effectively says that we've still learnt nothing uh, despite the crisis and there's much that needs to be done if we are to avoid a repeat. I started by asking uh, Peter if he could summarise in his own words the thesis of his original book and the way in which he had set about updating it. The central theme of the book was um, the over-accumulation of debt in many dimensions. So it was, um, it was individuals' debt, companies' debt, financial institutions' debt, government's debt. So there, there were lots of dimensions, but the trends were pretty clear um, and obviously particularly in the richer countries. So, so we, we went really through the 1990s, just accumulating debt, uh, it seemed to be ever more rapidly year by year. Uh, and that was alarming me. Um, I think alongside that, what we also had was a lot of financial innovation. We had innovation of financial structures, um, we had innovation of products, we had innovation of institutions. We had a lot of um, of new types of, of institutions that grew up or, or at least became much more significant in the, in the economic system. And it, it seemed to me that these two things, the debt buildup and the financial innovation and proliferation of, of new institutions, um, they were significant for the stability of the financial and economic system, and yet were not being, being given um, much consideration. Um, and I think putting those two things together was that the, the institution that you would have looked to, uh, to to say, is this safe or not? You know, is this uh, going to give us problems in the future? That institution would be the central bank. So that would be in the US Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, uh, as it came to be, and um, uh, the Bank of Japan, and Bank of England, and so forth. And it seemed to me that the central banks, rather than looking critically at these developments, they were waving them through. They, they were um, fully um, fully behind the trends um, and in some ways encouraging them. The, the book itself was entitled Debt and Delusion, um, and the delusion was on the part of the authorities, you're saying, that they were uh, they, they believed that what they were presiding over was something which for which they could perhaps um, t- even take credit which in fact was a, was, a, was a challenge and a threat to, to the system which they hadn't identified. That's right. But I mean, the delusion um, was shared by a lot of the borrowers as well. You know, I, I think the, the way in which we, in that time, disregarded um, benchmarks of what were safe levels of debt to carry. Um, so, you know, you, you might say that uh, um, for um, 
private equity business or something, and sort of sort of three times debt might have been reasonable at one time, and but if that became seven times debt or people's mortgages. Um, they might one time have taken three times income uh, um, as a maximum loan amount, uh, and that became six times income or six times joint income. So it was um, somehow a belief that um, we could disregard the, the benchmarks which had served as well in the past. So that was you published that book in 1999, and clearly that uh, the build-up of debt continued after that, uh, and then we had the global financial crisis, which... Um, would you it would be too simplistic to say it was just a direct consequence of these trends that you were talking about? But it was certainly a very dramatic illustration, perhaps, of. Uh, yeah, of I, I don't think we could have had that crisis um, had we not had the dry tinder um, of of these um, contexts of extreme indebtedness. You know, and obviously, in the end, it was the the U.S. Uh, mortgage market. The, in particular, the subprime mortgage market. But basically, in the end, we created a context um, that was capable um, of igniting um, in such a way as to have you know, a, a global systemic effect. But if, if you like, we've been piling up this bonfire um, for a very long time. Okay, so now uh, moving forward, we're now uh, another uh, eight years on from the global financial crisis, the banking crisis. And we are still living with the consequences of that. But we're also, I guess you're saying, we're still living with the consequences of the original thesis that you developed. In other words, we don't understand, uh, or people haven't absorbed it fully, the lessons of what's been happening. And that's why we've failed to actually so far come up with a convincing response to the, uh, the crisis itself. Yes, I think the, uh, there, there are a number of points to make here. I mean... One is that um, it would have been reasonable to expect, and it began to happen, that the unstable structures, credit structures, um, looked as though they were going to be folded into the banking system. In other words, the banks would sort of take over dodgy liabilities, you know, obviously not at face value, but they, they would take these over and they would kind of digest them back into the financial system properly. So if you like, the shadow banks would give up their balance sheets back into the commercial banking system. And that, that began to happen, but um, it stopped happening pretty quickly. Uh, and since then, um, we've had this battle going on between uh, what appears to be a central bank desire for reflation to occur, uh, and obviously reflation requiring the expansion of banks' balance sheets and, and the money supply as part of that, um, versus what is a more political uh, agenda, um, which is to regulate financial institutions and obviously particularly the banks to make sure that this terrible disaster with all kinds of public consequences never happens again. So if you like, we've had these two um, conflicting narratives running in parallel since the crisis. One, to try and get recovery going um, and make the economy grow and make the debt small, and the other um, trying to punish uh, the those responsible for the financial crisis um, and make sure that they could never act in the same way again. Um, and unfortunately, the combination of these two narratives is largely um, cancelled out, and, and the the reflation um, that might have occurred with the extreme extremely easy credit policies 
um, had in fact not occurred. So let's take a, a snapshot of where we are now. I, we've, we had there was a lot of talk about um, in that context, both of punishing the banks and, and, and changing the regulation, but also about austerity and deleveraging, you know, cutting the debt burden around the world. But what actually has happened since then? It hasn't gone that quite like that, has it? No, um, there was a phase in if you like, the advanced economies um, where in many of them, debt burdens got smaller. Um, they mainly got smaller because the debt was written off. They got smaller because there was some, um, you know, some growth of money incomes. Um, and they got growth, they, they got smaller slightly because people voluntarily repaid off debt by saving more. Um, but that really was a, a temporary phase, and about three years ago it gave way to uh, pretty much universally uh, rising debt burdens again in advanced economies. But the real story is in the emerging countries, and obviously you may want to consider China um, as distinct from uh, the group of, of Asian tigers, for example, but essentially having gone for a whole decade after the Asian financial crisis, uh, without any material build-up in, in, uh, in debt in the emerging countries at all, um, they have gone hell for leather um, in the last five or six years. Uh, so basically, a lot of the new build-up of debt in the system is actually um, in the emerging countries. And so what should the central banks in, let's start with the developed world, what should they be doing now on the basis of your analysis? Well, it's difficult to give a clean prescription. Um, you know, we're not in a first best world. We're not in a second best world. I don't know, we, you know how far down the tier we are. And therefore, you know, that, um, whilst I might like to give a, a kind of a principled answer to that question, I, I think I find myself wanting to give a pragmatic answer. But what it seems to me is that central banks have become utterly embroiled in the dynamics of the financial system. So in other words, they're not able to act independently on the system by changing their policies. They are themselves part of the system. Um, and, and so I think to strike out and act independently on some simple criteria, um, which in my, in my view should be to take interest rates back to 2%, um, you know, for starters, to get back, if you like, to the lower bound of what was the previously the uh, the range of interest rates throughout most of the post-war period, I think to, to bring interest rates back towards the bottom of, of that of that historical band, um, and I'm sure it would have all kinds of unpleasant consequences to do that um, initially, but but I think um, to have a committed normalisation interest rates is the first step uh, to seeing what else needs to change. So it's, if you like, to the extent that people have captured the central banks, that is banks and asset managers and so on, then it's not possible even to tell what you next want to do until you've done that first step of taking rates back to 2%, <clears throat> restoring some income to savers, um, you know, reminding borrowers that um, they, they actually shouldn't expect <clears throat> their borrowing costs to remain uh, this low forever, um, and, and if if there is a you know broad negative effect of that, then I think um, that's still necessary, still the right thing to do. 
So in the past, we we would talk about central banks, you know, taking the punch bill away in terms of in, in because growth was getting too strong or credit growth was getting too strong. But now you're saying that they've got to take, as it were, their own punch bill away by by uh, by uh, trying to uh, raise interest rates, even though the incentives and the whole uh, theme of the last few years has been their reluctance to do so for fear of something worse, essentially. I, I suppose what I'm advocating is um, central banks walking off the pitch, not playing the game anymore. Basically, going back to a very simple paradigm, which for me is basically to say that if you take the financial deficit of households and the financial deficit of companies together, normalize it by the size of the economy, if you see that combined deficit rising in a continuous way, then you should be raising interest rates. You know, the ba- basically, um, you, know, you should be seeking to make the borrowing environment for households and companies you know, more difficult, more expensive, if you see the, their combined action being to run a bigger deficit. Um, and and that, that simple paradigm worked wonderfully well for the U.S. Fed, um, you know, right up to the early 1990s. Uh, and since then, um, they've gone off chasing all kinds of other objectives. And, you know, we, we, we've seen the chaotic results in, in the financial system. Uh, you know, when the Fed started to worry about global financial stability, I guess the, the, the peso crisis in Mexico in uh, 1993, and since then, um, you know, they, they've tried to set a global monetary policy rather than a domestic one. You know, we, we, we've had some extraordinary consequences as a result. So you would want to see the Fed raise interest rates uh, again this year and next year and so on. Uh, but is it actually possible for one central bank anymore to act unilaterally, as it were? Or do you think there needs to be coordinated uh, action across the, uh, across, the, across the world now? I mean, the, the Fed is sufficiently important that I think it can plough its own furrow. Uh, I'm not sure. Maybe you could say that the Bank of Japan is ploughing its own furrow as well, but it's a very strange furrow, and uh, um, it doesn't probably offer any great um, examples for anyone else to follow. Um, yeah, I, I, I think um, if two or three of the most powerful central banks in the world could uh, agree, you know, to point in the same direction. Um, you know, I, I think that would be wonderfully helpful right now. At the moment, monetary policy seems to be done uh, very differently in different places at different times, and uh, I agree that that you know, makes it very difficult to observe any any consistent, you know, pattern of action. What happens if they don't do what you're suggesting? If we keep on accumulating debt in the system, we basically use up, you know, the sort of the debt capacity uh, of pretty much every country and every sector. Obviously, you can only sustain a certain amount of debt in terms of servicing it uh, efficiently, um, even at very low interest rates. Um, uh, and so, you know, as we move towards you know more debt saturation, then you know I, I think we inevitably create a new context in which a big disaster can happen. Arguably, non-investment grade corporate bonds are that context. You know, I, I think that. Um, you know, we're not living in the same world even two years ago. We now have global uh, corporate bond defaults building up quite strongly. Obviously, some of them are energy related, but not all of them by any means. Um, so basically, we, we have an unpriced um, new 
credit default cycle. So we still have very, very tight spreads on corporate debt, and, and obviously there are lots of investors uh, who have been deprived of income and duration in the government bond market, and they've been seeking to replace that um, in corporate bonds and, of course, in, in equities as well. But my concern really is that there will be a moment where the lack of liquidity, um, secondary market liquidity in corporate bonds, you know, of, of advanced economies as well as emerging um, bonds, you know, will spark some kind of crisis. A lot of the, a lot of this ownership is ultimately retail ownership, you know, through corporate bond funds. Um, and as been well pointed out, if you're a bond investor in a bond, then um, you know, if something bad happens and the price of your bond goes down, then you can decide to do nothing about it because you know you've got a redemption date. You know that you, there's a promise that your bond you know, will be redeemed at that price at that date. With a bond fund, um, there's no such guarantee. There's no redemption date and there's no guarantee of somebody else coming in um, and taking your position. Um, so I, I do worry that... Um, we've already created another significantly sized context in which a crisis could, could occur. And, you know, before that money would have been much more supplied in the form of bank loans. And then, you know, it would have been a question of, of banks suffering some losses and uh, having to recapitalize and, and, all, and all that. But, but this is a different scenario. This is now um, a new potential cycle of debt default, one um, which would strike um, very powerfully into the portfolios of retail investors. So that's a, a worrying uh, uh, potential problem. How does this fit in, though, with what might happen to inflation? You've been on record for a while saying you, you're expecting the eventual end to this uh, debt uh, cycle to be inflation. But uh, what you're saying now seems to be slightly different. What, what What is your prognosis for how this, are we going to get deflation then in that kind of crisis context or are we actually heading back to inflation uh, in some form or another? Yes, I, I, I haven't changed my mind uh, about the inflationary end game. Um, I, I think the the key link here is the, the way in which um, the rewards to the growth of debt and the growth of financial asset prices in the last seven years, you know, but basically the debt in one sense rests with all of us, but the benefits rest with a relatively narrow group of people who benefited from the inflation of financial asset prices. And I think it's the societal tensions which really are the key to the inflationary end game. So if you like, there are two big contexts. Um, you know, which are obviously exercising uh, the party conferences in the UK at the moment and, and indeed the US presidential debate as well. So those two contexts um, are first and foremost, if you like, what seems like a very uneven distribution of, uh, of rewards, um, whether income or wealth, uh, in society. That's received a lot of attention. And the other is pensions. The other is what's going to happen to pensioners and their incomes, um, if we carry on um, bringing down interest rates and we can possibly explore making them negative, what, what's going to happen to pensioner incomes? It's pretty obvious uh, how that one's going to end. 
Um, so I think that the inflation comes out of a political economy resolution of these two big issues of the day. So I would say forget the economic models, you know, forget the output gaps, um, you know, forget the um, inflation targeting regimes. I think they're all going to get blown away um, in, in the next few years. Um, and the inflation that comes is going to be essentially uh, a politically mandated inflation. What finally do you think in this context, um, what finally do you think the implications from this kind of scenario are for investors? Obviously, they need to, <laughs> they need to think quite carefully about what they're investing in at the moment, whether they're corporate bond funds, for example. Um, but in terms of a general approach, if you think this, what you're suggesting, I think, is that this process is is not only going to happen, but is, is sort of inevitable. It's not like uh, there's no other way out of this. So what what, what are the implications for uh, investors in general from uh, from your, your diagnosis of what the problem is now? Yes, I think that there's a, a short-term, like sort of tactical approach and, and there's a, a more longer-term strategic. I, I think... Um, it's still, I think, wise to think about inflation being a more serious issue and there being some inflationary resurgence in, in developed economies over the next few years. And therefore, I, I think it's possible to invest quite you know, at, at good entry points, as it were, in the expectation that that will, will happen. And obviously, um, that would be things like uh, gold and precious metals, it might be uh, even um, a commodity fund, it might be um, the, the energy and commodity components of the equity market, it could be inflation-linked bonds. Obviously, you have to decide where the value lies in, in all of these inflation-related um, instruments. Um, but um, I think tactically, um, we haven't reached the point where we can regenerate more rapid income growth. Uh, so the reason that that, um, that income, you know, the equities that you hold primarily for income, um, and indeed some of the corporate bonds you own, but I would say stick to um, investment grade corporate bonds. Um, the reason you hold them is because income is scarce. And therefore, uh, investors are competing for the income that's generated you know, by these, these high-yielding stocks and, and these high-yielding corporate bonds. But at the point where a policy change occurs, at the point where it's clear that a policy change is coming, then you will not want to own those overpriced income stocks. Basically, you, you will, you, you'll want to rotate into... Um, if you like, neglected other portions of the equity market, and I say perhaps particularly in, in, in energy-related stocks. So, um, I, and I think there are implications. You know, we aren't, we haven't reached the point where it's clearly the case that there's going to be a massive fiscal expansion. Arguably, we, we're going to get public money um, playing a bigger role, but I think more likely to be in the context um, of a renewed economic downturn uh, rather than in a preemptive way. So, so yes, um, you know, if public wages are going to go up, then there's certain kinds of consumer stocks that, that you'd be quite happy to own, um, where the franchises will become more valuable. My concern already is that um, the capital goods 
stocks, um, I, I think we're going to have a very rough ride in the near future. Just to wrap this up then, Peter, um, we're at a potentially fascinating but critical point in the in the cycle. Your hope, your expectation is that uh, interest rates are going to be increased and that they will have an effect in, in, in due course eventually in uh, putting some more dynamism back into the global economy. But we may have to go through a pretty uh, torrid adjustment process first. Would that be an exaggeration to say that? No, I, I think the last three years um, has desperate measures. Um, you know, the Bank of Japan uh, under Abe, ECB in a succession of, of, of innovative measures in 2014 and onwards. Um, and latterly, obviously, we had China um, completely changing its tack on, on its credit policy in the second half of last year. Um, that might have propelled us into a new reflation cycle. But unfortunately, it looks to me as though um, that hasn't worked and that we, we can't rely really on, uh, on even those um, strategies even being continued. So, so I, I, I think reluctantly, um, I, I, I think that uh, we are more likely to put um, our system under strain again um, before we invent the more inflationary policies that um, will make the financial system paradoxically more stable. Very good. Well, on that note, Peter, thank you very much. That's such a uh, fascinating and uh, thought-provoking uh, set of uh, arguments you put forward there. And uh, uh, let's uh, watch to see how it pans out and whether your prescriptions are as right as the ones you made in your book originally uh, uh, 16 years ago. Thank you very much. Thank you.